Thank you for joining us for episode 400 of Live Happy Now. Studies show us, and social media often backs it up, that we're becoming less empathetic. So what can we do about it? I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and this week's guest is going to tell us how we can begin to solve the empathy crisis. Rob Volpe is a thought leader in the role of empathy in the marketing and workspace and is author of Tell Me More About That, Solving the Empathy Crisis, One Conversation at a Time. Today, he offers some unique insights into what's causing our lack of empathy and tells us what skills we need to develop to bring it back. Let's have a listen. Rob, thank you so much for joining us on Live Happy Now. Paula, thank you. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Empathy. Wow, what a huge topic because it's something we talk so much about, but we don't always have the solutions. It seems like solutions are really hard to find. So I want to know your origin story of what made you start looking into this and how did you decide to tackle such an enormous and important topic? Thank you. Yeah, it is huge and something we all need with others as well as with ourselves. And I think as we are in that moment in January, there's so many resolutions and intentions that have been set, you have to actually have some empathy with yourself. So to sort of quiet those judgmental voices and and things that are going on that can prevent you from actually sticking with a resolution or achieving goals and actually even just being happy. But for myself, by way of introduction, so I've always had empathy as part of my core values and principles. I grew up in the Midwest in a small town in Indiana we had moved into that town. The kids decided, you know, and this was a small town where everybody was related to everybody else. And yeah. you know, we were the outsiders with that Italian last name. Oh, kids, no, not in the Midwest. Not in the Midwest. Like the mafia is coming to town. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were thinking that or Chef Boyardee. <laughs> so in fifth grade, it was 1979, 1980. And one of the kids in the class decided to start telling everybody that I was gay. And like, I didn't understand what gay was, but I also didn't, I'm not a physically violent person. That's not where I go to immediately. So I didn't haul off and slug the kid for insulting me. Well, that rumor caught on like wildfire and my life was kind of a living hell for a few years. And empathy was actually one of the ways that I learned to navigate and survive because I realized that if I was able to understand my classmates and who they were and what their life was like, it would help them like me a little bit more. And when the next rumor got started or or whatever, somebody wanted to beat me up, it wasn't going to be as much of a pile on because we were connected in these other ways. I understood some of who they were and listened to them and had empathy. That is so unusual for someone at that young age to have that kind of wisdom. What was it in you that allowed you to respond that way instead of just being hurt, just being defensive and angry? Yeah, I'm very honest in my book. I talk about those years. And the first couple of years, I was very hurt, angry, defensive, sad, isolated, alone. I was suicidal. I write about that pretty openly Mm -hmm. in the book. And I'm really grateful that the internet wasn't around and social media and all those things because... You know, it's so much harder, I think, for kids that are struggling today because so much of that information's out there. But for myself, it started to turn around a couple of years into all of that. I think I had a very good family environment. I call it I had a safe harbor in my house. And you know, it wasn't 
you know, idyllic or Norman Rockwell picture perfect, certainly, but it was a lot better than what was happening outside. So I was able to come home and be safe. And my dad's side of the family, especially, which was in New York, I felt just unconditional love from them and had a very close connection with them. I was able to hold on to those things and also knew because we had moved in that I'd be able to move out someday. This was a temporary situation. And even though, you know, when you're in sixth grade, looking at 12th grade and graduating, that's a long time. It's a lifetime at that age. It totally is. But something inside me just kept me, you know, hanging on and holding on. And I think over time I got introduced to and and just sort of intuitively tumbled into some of the principles that are in Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Mm -hmm. Friends and Influence People. And a lot of what he talks about is empathy and listening to other people and understanding where they're coming from. And once I got hold of that book, I think that was in high school, then I definitely was able to put that to use. But it was stuff that I was doing intuitively, you know, talking to the kids sitting next to me in class and just listening to them and asking them questions and not being judgmental towards them because I knew what it felt like when they would be judgmental towards me. It wasn't easy. It wasn't fun, but I got through it and it just became a superpower. Something just kind of clicked on. So what as an adult made you decide to start looking at this? Because your timing We've always needed empathy, but I don't think there's ever been a time when we need it more than we do now. Yeah. Well, and, you know, 10 years, 12, uh, oh no, it's 2023, 13 years ago, (laughs) I have to update my storytelling. 13 years ago in 2010, a study came out from the University of Michigan. They did this analysis looking at college life surveys. I think it was 76 universities from 1979 through 2009. And one of the questions they asked was, are you able to easily see the point of view of your peers? And they, what they found was that there was a decline in that ability of others to see the point of view of their peers, 40% decline from 1979 through 2001. And then the last eight years, it, it just was kind of flat. So that meant you know, in 2010, that study came out. And I remember still seeing it on the news in, on CNN and anchors talking about it. And it was on that little ticker crawl at the bottom of the screen. And I was like, oh my God, we've got to do something about this. Because if you were in college in 2001 and you had 40% less empathy than your peers from 20 years earlier, by 2010, that meant you were in your early thirties. Today, that means you're in your early mid forties. That's a lot of people that don't have the same amount of empathy skill or or feel as comfortable with it as there were in prior generations. So that to me was a, you know, warning bell, we got to do something about this. So my field is in consumer insights, marketing research. So we talk to people for a living and we try to understand how they think and feel. We use empathy. And one of the things we noticed was that our clients wouldn't always have empathy with their consumers. They were, you know, if you think about marketing executive at one of the big multinational leading brands, they're not always connected in understanding who their consumer is because it's completely different from them. And it was really frustrating because, you know, they're spending a lot of money. We're putting a lot of our heart and soul and, and sweat into creating these opportunities and they weren't making that connection. And we started thinking, well, what's getting in their way? 
And that's when we started noticing, well, judgment is coming up and getting in their way. And maybe they're not asking the right questions or actively listening. All these things that ultimately became what we call the five steps to empathy. And so at my firm, Ignite360, we started to train that and coach that to people because to bring awareness to what you need to do in the moment to be more empathetic with somebody else can go a long way towards actually getting there. So started doing all of those things. And then I started writing my book, Tell Me More About That, Solving the Empathy Crisis One Conversation at a Time, which just came out uh, less than a year ago. Since 2010, what has happened with our level of empathy? Oh, the authors... (laughs) That doesn't sound good. (laughs) I know, that was a heavy sigh. The authors of that study tried to refresh it in 2016, and they did not find a meaningful change to what I understand. Data that we have now, because we've continued to ask that same question and and other questions, nearly one-third of U.S. adults are unable to easily see the point of view of other people and freely admit that. Really? So, Yeah. And the way the psychology of asking questions works, we wanted to use the question that University of Michigan was looking at. So there was some sort of sense of comparison, but that question is kind of a gimme question. You know, it's one of those questions where you look at it and you you think, well, if I don't answer this, yes, then I'm (laughs) going to feel like a fool. So what that tells me is that the number is, while it 31% are saying, admitting to it, it's probably even higher because there are people who are like, agreeing with the statement rather than because that's what you're supposed to do. So there's that. Some data from a study we had this summer in September, 62% of US adults, we asked them about all these 24 different global societal personal issues, you know, food prices, the effects of inflation on gas and energy, as well as political topics, as well as climate change and pollution and women's health and reproductive rights and other inequalities, healthcare access. We also asked, included in that battery of questions we asked or answers, we asked about their concern about the inability of people to overcome differences. That was fourth highest on the list. Really? The only things that were above that were food, the personal pocketbook things, food prices, gas prices, and home energy prices. And the gap between those and worrying about overcoming our differences was minuscule. It was a one percentage point. That's amazing. It is. It's like everyone's concerned about that. Well, not everyone. Two-thirds. 62%. 62%, (laughs) Nearly two-thirds of U.S. adults were worried about it. 60% said that they were worried about political polarization in government. And it's like, if you can get over those things, we can actually fix all the other issues that we're, we're facing. So there's huge awareness about this, but people don't always know, okay, well, what do I do about it? How that's, and that's the I problem. It's like, even though we see now all these people are concerned, but that is the big question. So what is the next thing that we do? How do we start bridging this gap? And, you know, part of it, people don't want to be the one that budges. It's like, well, we can overcome this gap if they'll just stop being insane and start understanding how I feel. Yeah. But what is the real solution for this? So there are several. The first thing is we have to have awareness of the problem and that there is an issue and that we may have some barriers to overcome. Empathy isn't the end state. It's 
the thing that fuels all those skills that we need so that we can communicate better and collaborate, you know, persuade somebody, have forgiveness, trust, all the things that make us the people that we are or want to become. Mm-hmm. Empathy enables those skills to be even better. So, okay, we're sitting here, we're having a conversation. You may be interacting with somebody. There's the five steps to empathy, which people need to practice, and they need to have the courage to actually try and do all of this. But the first one is dismantling your judgment. And that's the thing that gets in our way. And this isn't judgment in terms of making decision. This is about being judgmental. This is about casting aspersion at somebody. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like we've become more judgmental thanks to social media. Social media hasn't made us more judgmental, but the access that we have to judge people (laughs) and it's it, made it's, it safe in some ways to be judgmental word. because we it's giving us access and it's giving us anonymity. You know, when you look at the people that are really doing the trolling, like, are they really showing their face on there? Right. Is it really their name? And you know, no, it's not. There's this anonymity to it. So yeah, that's had a lot of impact on it. You know, if you look at the competitive zero-sum game nature of our entertainment and our politics, and that's Mm -hmm. been going on for 20, 25 years now, all of the reality TV shows that are so much about winning over somebody else and at all costs, and that's not empathetic. And I think there's, you know, within that sort of reality TV space, I think that's also why some shows that are more empathetic and supportive. I'm thinking about, you know, Queer Eye, I'm thinking about RuPaul's Drag Race, thinking about The Great British Bake Off. Those are all shows where, even though there may be not so much with Queer Eye, but with Drag Race and with The Bake Off, there's so much more support and nurturing environment created amongst the contestants as well. And they're much more empathetic and understanding where each other's coming from. But our inclination is just to be judgmental, to say something negative about somebody. And, you know, we have to dismantle that. We have to stop that. It's like a brick wall. You're never going to be able to get beyond it and get to empathy if you let your judgment get in the way. Mm -hmm. So it's when you're having those moments, stopping yourself and just say, where is that coming from? Why do I want to say that? Can I rephrase this or, or state this differently? And trying to catch yourself and taking a different tactic with that, taking a different approach, finding a different way of of phrasing something or not saying anything at all. So yeah, dismantle judgment is that first step. And then it's about asking good questions. It's about asking open questions, things that are exploratory, not things that are going to challenge someone. One of the favorite things when I'm giving talks on empathy, I have the audience rephrase questions without using the word why, even though they're trying to understand the word why. And that's something your listeners can try to do as well. Take the word why out of your vocabulary. Use who, where, what, when, and how instead, or even just use the phrase, tell me more about that. If you're trying to get somebody to explain something and the reason why this is so powerful from the time we were children, and we did something wrong, what was the question that was asked? Why did you do that? Yes, exactly. And then you go into school and what happens? Why were you late with that report? Why were you late to school? Why did you skip school? Whatever the thing might've been. Why did you steal the teacher's car again? Yeah. Again. (laughs) 
And it continues into our adult life as we're going through work and our personal relationships. You're always being challenged with the word why. And what happens is it puts you on the defensive and we very quickly learn like, hmm, I'm going to get in trouble. So I better be careful with what my answer is. And so therefore you're not giving the full honest truth. You're not opening up. Well, if you want to understand somebody and their behavior, you don't want to threaten them and make them feel defensive. You want to make them feel open. So instead of why did you steal the teacher's car for the second time to use that as an example, I'll turn that into tell me more about what was going on when you decided to take the teacher's car. Because by asking that question that way, you may find out that somebody will say, well, actually, my friend here was having a personal emergency or they cut themselves and they needed to go to the hospital. And that was the only car that was available. Versus if you said, why did you steal the teacher's car for the second time? You may have just gotten an, I don't know. It was there. <laughs> it I, needed, was there. <laughs> I needed a car. So it's reframing the question to, to make it feel safe for somebody to give an open answer. After the book came out, a mom reached out to me and she told me that I never met her before. And she told me that her son, she had a 13-year-old son and he was struggling in English class. And he came home from school and he was having difficulty with English. And, and I think she saw a note from the teacher or something. And she was about to say to him, why are you having trouble in English? And she stopped and thought about what she had read in the book. And she just said to him, tell me more about what's going on in English class. And she told me that he opened up to her in a way that he never had before, was able to reveal, because he felt safe, he was able to reveal what he was struggling with. She, in turn, was able to help him in a more productive way, and it brought them closer together. So it's these little things that we can do that can make us feel more safe and secure to get to a place of empathy and take why out of your questions. That's a huge one. I, I'm writing that down. So that's Thank a great you. one. Yeah, it's really powerful. The next step is to actively listen. And so, you know, the, the classic example of that is you go to a restaurant and you see a table next to you and what's going on. They're all down on their phones and they're not really listening. Oh, yeah. You know, when one person could be talking and the others are just, you know, who knows what they're doing on their yeah. phone at that point, they're not actively listening and their recall is, is much less. So you've got to actually be present and pay attention. You need to pay attention to not just the words that are being said, but the nonverbal cues. You know, you want to engage with what you're sensing might be going on. It's paying attention to what's actually happening. And then if you want to test yourself, a really great exercise is to then repeat back what the other person has said. And so effectively, it's like, well, let me make sure I heard this correctly. And then I would ask, did I get that right? And that would give you the opportunity to correct anything that I've said that maybe I misunderstood. So that's, that's a- really good. We don't do that enough with people. It's like we spend so much time thinking about how we're going to respond to what they're saying versus really engaging with them and making sure we understand them. Yeah. And it's just about repeating back what you've heard as, you know, verbatim effectively and saying, did I get that right? Did I, do I understand what you were saying? And that has the effect of 
it can defuse a tense situation because you're acknowledging the other person that, hey, I am hearing you. And you're also making sure that you truly are understanding their point of view and where they're coming from. And from there, you can then move forward. And we'll move forward into the fourth step, which is integrate into understanding. So you've done all these things. You've dismantled your judgment. You're asking the questions. You're not using those why questions. You're really listening to what somebody's saying. And you've got to then make sense of what they're saying and hold room in your head because we all have different ways of doing things and moving through the world. And it doesn't mean that the other person's way is wrong necessarily. So you have to make room in your head that, okay, there's just another way of doing this. In this part of the book, I talk about marijuana usage. We had done a study looking at people that were using legalized recreational marijuana as that's become more popular or approved in different states. And so we wanted to understand like who was getting high. And that becomes a situation where it's okay. It may be illegal in some states, but it isn't in others. And one of the things that I was surprised as I was doing some of the interviews and I write about in the book was the way a couple of the people told me that they will come home from work and use, you know, take a bong hit or take a hit off of a joint in the same, instead of having a drink at the right. end of the day. It's suddenly that when they said that, it was like, oh, okay, I get it. I, and that may not be my choice for what I want to do, but I understand that need. I've had a drink at the end of the, a long, hard day. Mm-hmm. So I understand now where you're coming from and that this is a, just a different way of approaching it. And then I can be curious about, well, tell me more about what that does for you and, and what are you looking for out of that situation if I wanted to explore the topic a bit further. And so it's about integrating into understanding. A really great exercise for people with this, just simply asking about what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? (laughs) Because in most cases, it's different. We all have different flavors and then being curious and asking, and you know, what is it about that flavor that you like so much? And then the game is, okay, we've only got money for one scoop of ice cream, you know, it's not, we can't Venmo or Zealot or buy now, pay later. We've only got money for one scoop of ice cream. We have to work together to decide what flavor we're going to get based on our preferences and our likes. And by doing that, you're learning more about each other. You're trying to understand where they're coming from and what might satisfy them. You're learning how to compromise and you're using empathy to get there. So it's a really easy, fun, tasty exercise. That's terrific. I like that. So that's really awesome exercise for the fourth step. The fifth and final step is we call use solution imagination. So this is that point where you're starting to hearing things and you're starting to turn it around and you're starting to use that to fuel further conversation. What's the next question to ask or the act of compassion or generosity that you might convey or whatever the situation is calling on. One of my favorite stories in the book, there's a chapter called Leave Your Boots at the Door. And again, and this was from about 10 years ago when we were having these realizations around empathy, we were taking some clients from a large food manufacturer and going into the homes of working class consumers because they wanted to understand more about their values and how they were approaching life. And we found 
that, and it was hard at first because, you know, we're all type A's and working late and got our devices and doing our things. And I remember I was in the home of one couple in Pittsburgh and I tell the story in the book, they were talking about the sacrifices that they've had to make. And I was like, well, what would they view as a sacrifice if they could double their salary and make more than a hundred thousand dollars? And it was amazing. They actually did not want to do that. Oh, really? Really? Because, and they said, and I started hearing this from different groups. I continued to ask the conversation. I was so fascinated by this. They saw people that were making six figures and they were like, yeah, they have to work all the time, work at night. They're always on their phone. They don't have time for their family to do all the different things. And that's where the title of the book came from. One of them said, like, when I'm done, I'm done. I leave my boots at the door. He -hmm. works, he works, the guy was working at a warehouse at the time as a, a supervisor. And they weren't interested in all of the trappings that go along with the success and, and literally the shackles that go along with it. They were, they would rather struggle. They're like, yeah, of course, it would be nice to pay off the house, to take a vacation, pay off the car. But what would that mean? And, you know, here we are sitting in their house. It's like eight o'clock at night. And I know that when this interview is done, I'm going to have to go back. You know, we're going to go have dinner with the clients and, you know, debrief and entertain the clients a bit. And then I'm going to go back to my hotel room and I'll be up for a few more hours after that, writing a report, working on whatever I wasn't able to get to that day. And you're like, who's the schmuck in this story? (laughs) (laughs) What am I doing? And it really made me reflect. But it was that idea of I was able to use solution imagination. I was hearing what they were saying. And it made me think like, hmm, what would that be like? What would they want? What would they give up? And I was able to then use that to prompt my next question, which then elicited this huge insight about, well, actually, no, I don't want to make that much money. It sounds nice on the surface, but no. And I would never have gotten to that point if I hadn't gone through the other steps and then really was listening to what they were saying and used that to imagine what it would be like to be them. So it's, that's that point of stepping into their shoes. And so what do you see within people and within organizations, whether it's a family or a company or whatever your structure is, as people become more empathetic, as they adopt these tools and begin to use them, what kind of changes does it enact in those relationships? You know, the data, the studies that are out there have found that people feel they're more loyal to their organization if they have empathetic managers, leaders, colleagues, because you're feeling supported, you're feeling safe and valued and heard. People are actually significantly more innovative at work. I think the oh, really? two-thirds of people say they can be more innovative at work when they have empathetic leadership. Is that because they're not afraid to make mistakes? They're not afraid to try things? Not afraid to make mistakes or try or speak up or make a suggestion. I think part of it is that they care more. So they want to try to fix things that might be wrong, problem solve, and you use empathy to do all of those things. But having that empathetic leadership is so critical to getting to that place. So there's a lot of things in the work place that have been studied where empathy has done a a great job. And then in your personal life, it strengthens your connections to other people, you know, whether it's a parent to a child, whether it's to a neighbor, or even with a friend, just reconnecting. And that's part of what we're all craving 
not just now in January 2023, but in this post-pandemic world, we're craving those quality connections with other people. And empathy helps you do that. But you have to have the courage. I quote Maya Angelou all the time. And one of the things that she said was, she believed that we all had empathy. We may not have the courage to display it. And so what I'm always challenging people with is to be courageous, to be empathetic. We can do this, but we we also have to remember is we have to have the grace with ourselves to recognize that we're human. We make mistakes and it's okay. What's important is that we're trying. And by trying, we will actually learn and strengthen those muscles and strengthen our empathy skills so that we will get it right. And that's what's going to make things better. And it's it's one conversation at a time. That's amazing. Rob, you have so many great insights to share with us. We're going to tell the listeners how they can get your book because it is just packed with how we can make this work, how we can all become empathetic and how we can really start changing our world because of it. But before I let you go, what is the one thing that you hope everyone hearing your voice today will take away from this conversation? That's an awesome question. I hope that people realize that we all have the ability to be empathetic. We just need to have the courage to try. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Paula, thank you. This has really been great. That was Rob Volpe talking about empathy. If you'd like to learn more about Rob and his book, tell me more about that, Solving the Empathy Crisis, One Conversation at a Time, or follow him on social media, visit us at livehappy.com and click on the podcast link. And while you're there, you'll also find a free bonus chapter from his book, Offering the Five Steps to Empathy. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.